Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the uh, usually four, but currently four, but uh, three regulars of us get together and give an industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So uh, quick intros. First, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then there's myself, Hasib. I'm the head hype man at Dragonfly. And as special guests today, we have joining us Do Kwan, who is uh, chief terrorist at Terra. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 I have to do that. No, uh, Doquan, one of the co-founders of Terra, uh, the Terra Foundation and the, uh, the LFG. So the, the, uh, the three of us uh, are early stage investors into crypto. Doquan is a, is a founder in crypto. But I want to caveat that nothing that we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. Do, how are you doing? And uh, <laughs> I, apologize for, I apologize for the intro. I, I, was, I was feeling myself. No worries at all. Yeah. It's, it's, thanks for having me. Yeah. How's, how's life in Terraland? Oh, it's great. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm hoping that we don't take, get taken off the air now that we have you on. I'm in Singapore right now. Um, and so, I, by the way, anybody who's watching live, I'll have to excuse if the, uh, if the connection is not great, but my connection in Singapore has been a little, a little flaky. But um, you and I actually ran into each other. I didn't even realize that you were, uh, you were in town. How's, uh, how are you liking Singapore? Uh, it's good. It's super hot. So I uh, find my sleep schedule all weird. So I try to maximize the time uh, where I stay awake when the weather is still cool. So I wake up very early, go to sleep very late at night. And then I take a nap like at like two to two to three, two, two to four. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm living the same way because I, because a lot of my team is on U.S. hours and, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs I speak to are on U.S. hours. But basically I get up super early and I work a lot like 7 a.m. to like, you know, it's like 1 p.m. And then my day gets really slow, which I'm not used to. And so then I have like time to like nap or like work out or whatever. And then at night it picks up again because then East Coast wakes up and then, and then I have a bunch of calls at night. So I'm, I'm getting used to that routine, but uh, it's, uh, it, it, is, it is a little weird when you, when you first get into it. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the uh, interesting, one of the interesting uh, uh, piece of news that we wanted to chat about this week was, um, so you've been on a betting spree lately. It's, it was reported that there were, there were two bets that you made with some, uh, some folks in, in the crypto universe. First, you made a $1 million bet. I can't remember who it was, was some rando on crypto, on crypto Twitter who was, who was yelling at you. And then, um, you made a, a, a second bet that was $10 million with another person, a, a, a trader in crypto. Uh, tell us about why you made these bets. What was the, um, what was the impulse behind them? And, uh, and why you're so bullish on, on the or, price of Or terror. why the other side made the bets and what you're going to prove or disprove through them. I mean, so obviously, like, I can't be objective about what I think about, you know, Luna price is going to be over the next few years, right? So uh, if I wasn't bullish, I wouldn't be working so hard. So uh, I think for me, it made a lot of sense to bet in a direction that I have very strong belief in. But at the same time, like, one of the things that I regret about making this bet is that once I made it, I got hundreds of DMs 
from a bunch of people asking me to bet on everything running the gamut from, oh, like, can we bet Luna at a different price point? Can you give me different odds? Can you, yeah, can we bet on the outcome of this game? Can we bet on something? But can I be the custodian? And I promise not to rug. So massive, massive headache. And it definitely wasn't worth that hassle. Yeah. Also, I think it had the side effect of giving, you know, two people that, which are okay, but mild or mildly annoying. Lots of publicity in the process. So that, that definitely probably has some cost to it as well. Maybe Terra will be the, uh, the very first protocol to nail the uh, decentralized prediction market, but it'll just be dope. You know, you can place a bet on chain, escrow in a smart contract, and those are going to be, you know, the counterparty for everything. Well, the odds would be great. So let me ask you a very basic markets question, just so, you know, because I'm a markets person um, at heart. Is there a positive or negative carry? on let's say like luna perps like is the expected price of luna in a year higher or lower than it is today and did one side of this bet you or the other folks you know enter into this at a very quiet disadvantage based on the sort of like carrying cost of the bet uh so i think the second trader most likely hedged his bet and you're right from a from an actual cost perspective it doesn't actually make sense for me but um, but like, for, for example, like the first bet, for instance, uh, I have, I had the luxury of locking up capital, a significant amount of capital for, for somebody that's kind of annoying. So it prevents him from making, you know, trades, right? Well, at the same time, he might make a modest return from hedging, but not as much as he would like to, right? So definitely worth it. But if your question is just from like a pure traders perspective, can these guys hedge their bets and still make money? The answer is yes. Got it. So like they right now there's a carrying cost that they're profiting if they hedged it. And if you hedged it, it would have been losing to just run with that for a year hedged. Definitely interesting. Maybe you were going to say the same thing. I'm I'm actually curious why they want to bet with you specifically on the price of Luna when I feel like so much of the discussion I see around Terra on Twitter is around UST and the price of UST. And there's like these these, these constant you know battles back and forth around how UST works and if people you know, believe in the UST peg. And I feel like that's the interesting bet in my mind versus Luna. Like, I think you're great and I think you've been putting out some great product, but like there's so much you know, fluctuation in, in overall crypto markets. It's, it's hard to sort of know. Well, I mean, uh, there's a simple answer to that, right? It's harder to bet, hedge a bet for UST de-pegging, right? Whereas it's very easy to hedge a bet uh, in terms of what Luna's price is. It's, it's just a very simple option, right? So. I think that's why. In fact, I think for the first person who took the bet, uh, he was initially proposed a bet on USD depegging risk, even though he's been bitching about it for a year. And he wouldn't take it precisely because it's not hedgeable. I mean, it feels like, though, the, the real story is so there, there are a bunch of details about market structure that are, that are interesting to delve into. But the real story here is that, like, there are a lot of annoying people on Twitter and you like were like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to pick you and you and I are going to go head to head and like gladiator combat on crypto Twitter. And the question is, like, does that work? Like, do you do you feel like you have learned something about how crypto Twitter settles fights? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends what you're going for. But if it's, you know, if you're if you're trying to apply a utility function to my time, my money and, um, you know, net positive publicity, it was probably negative. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll make money. So you feel like the publicity was negative? No, I I mean, the publicity itself wasn't negative. I think the publicity was net neutral. Uh, We got attention, but, Hmm. you know, there were other things going on in the backdrop 
leading to that publicity as well. But I, I think the main cost was now, uh, basically my Twitter inbox looks like Polymarket. It's probably more liquid, so. <laughs> <laughs> I see, yeah. I see. Okay, so probably this might be um, the last bet that you make for a while with- uh, Absolutely, yeah. with, with Twitter critics, I see, okay. Um, any any advice to um, to to folks on on how to deal? I mean, obviously, you know, the rise of terror over the last year has been meteoric, and naturally, that's that's probably gotten you both a lot of supporters and a lot of enemies. What have been your overall lessons on like how to deal with the the the, the clamor and the noise in crypto Twitter for somebody like yourself? Well, I I feel like you know when I talk to a lot of founders. The one of the biggest sources of burnout is that they tend to take stuff that people say on Discord or on Twitter or on Telegram personally, right? And that's a really bad way of looking at things because especially if like somebody's saying that you're you're a scammer or like whatever that you designed is not going to work, yeah, they're they're not doing it so that you are going to take it personally, right? Even if they're fighting their bags, it's just good business, right? And even if they're not, it might be because it's a part of their job or because they don't know you personally. But insofar as like you, you treat it as an opportunity to potentially like say something clever or to ratio somebody, then it becomes massively fun. Robert, I mean, you've, you've also been through this, of course, with, uh, with building Compound. What, what's your perspective on that question? I, I think it's really simple. Crypto is more front and center as an industry in like the public domain than I think any other industry on earth. Like if you look at the CEOs of like Fortune 500 companies, they have like a thousand followers. And crypto, even like the earliest stage projects are like immediately in like the public arena, right? In a way that like most corporations aren't or most like leaders of corporations just aren't. And I I think it's both extremely positive and, you know, extremely negative, especially for the mental health of a lot of the participants. The other thing that's interesting about it is like we also live in an industry unlike every other where almost everyone's anonymous. Um, or a very large contingent is anonymous versus any other industry. And so it makes it a lot easier in a good and bad way to like spar, right? And so I actually think it's a great skill. And I think like the folks that are looking to create something in this space have to just like assume that they're going to get it, (laughs) that there's a lot of people who are comfortable and it's helpful for a lot of founders and negative, but like there's a lot of folks that are ready to engage, you know, with like the positive and the negative. And it's just not something you're ever going to get with Web2. Like I founded a Web2 company. N- the number of people that like were like positive or negative on Twitter about it was like zero. Right. And so that's just it's just so fundamentally different. And I think some people like just it's fuel, you know, and if like it's fuel for you, like you should probably like consider founding something. And if it's not fuel and if it's scary, find a co-founder that like it is fuel for. Doe, I mean, you know, I remember, um, I remember the very, very early days of Terra back when, you know, it was primarily just payments. Uh, and, you know, the, I remember there was Chai, which was the payments company that was kind of the, the sort of the, the primary tenant of the Terra blockchain way back in the day before, before you guys adopted smart contracts. When do you feel like the experience of building Terra really changed from being kind of like what Robert's describing of like, uh, people, you know, it's like it, it, it matters, but mostly people are like just kind of using the product to now this is like a, you're, you're, you're constantly fighting every single day on crypto Twitter. And it's like, it's, it's just a war zone. When did that change? 
after some point, we sort of made a conscious decision that it's not worth a lot of trouble trying to build a payments company across like 12 different jurisdictions. There's a reason why it's never been done before. And it's more of a compliance business than anything else. Right. So the, the reason why like all the payment interfaces look pretty much the same is not because the entrepreneurs working there are stupid. It's because like it, there's a lot of red tape in trying to get anything done. And um, actually, the less developed the market is, the harder it is to get things done. So, for example, if you look at like Indonesia, they haven't got a payment license in, I think, over the last decade. And then in order to do so, and like if you talk to the people on the ground there, uh, they, they, stuff like, they say stuff like, oh, you need to know the right people or like, oh, you need to be ready to pay. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going to bribe people. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so after a while, we sort of decided that, you know, trying to build a payments company and have that be sort of like the central consumer of a blockchain just doesn't work for lots of different reasons. So we started to think about what are some other things that you can build with stable coins. And that's sort of when the Terra ecosystem started to take off. And when do you feel like that if you guys hit that inflection point of like, oh crap, now this thing is more than just a product. It's now like a movement. So actually uh, in DeFi 2020, um, we, we spent a little bit, so like in early 2020, we split the two companies all together. So Chai, um, my, my co-founder, Daniel Shin, he split off and he started to run Chai. And then I started running TFL. And then TFL had, um, I think, 12 people uh, when the split finalized. Um, and um, it was both, almost all dense. So uh, we said, hey, look, I think we need to, f- you know, think about different things that we need to build. So we, you know, sat and looked at the whiteboard and twiddled our thumbs for like three hours and then we decided, okay, yeah, we got to try to do this uh, in another ecosystem where there's more activity, right? So we started to spend some time, um, you know, looking at DeFi ecosystems on Ethereum. And then um, I think around DeFi summer, we anonymously launched a fair launch project on Ethereum. And I think I spoke to more than one of you here, which was super fun because uh, Terra didn't really have a DeFi ecosystem back then. So understanding the mechanics of fair launches and what gets people excited about DeFi and uh, lots of other new innovations that were coming into the space. That was a huge learning experience. So we took a lot of those learnings and started to launch things like Mirror and Anchor and some other things, which ended up doing pretty well. Yeah. Full disclosure, Robot Ventures invested in Mirror. Yes. And uh, Dragonfly invested into Anchor. Um, I think we, I think we got some Mirror through secondary, uh, or th- you know, through secondary markets. So we're, uh, we're also very avid investors in the uh, Terra ecosystem. Speaking of, speaking of investments, um, one of the big news of the week that unfortunately Tarun couldn't be here to, to uh, experience our, our love and admiration. It's but, more fun uh, that he's not here, actually. It is more fun that he's not here, that we can, we, can, we can talk shit and talk about the real stuff. So Gauntlet just closed around raising $23.8 million led by Ribbit Capital at a $1 billion valuation, which makes Gauntlet a unicorn. So congratulations to Tarun. Crazy, crazy outcome. I, I, I realize that a lot of people listening to the show probably don't even know what Gauntlet does. So actually, we are early investors into Gauntlet. Gauntlet, for those of you who are not aware, Gauntlet is basically a... How would you, how would you describe Gauntlet? So basically, they're like a kind of uh, analysis slash simulation company that what they do is they is they uh, work directly with protocols, layer ones, uh, DeFi, DeFi platforms, things like that. And they try to use actor-based simulations to determine what optimal parameters might be and, and what the 
what the risks are to different um, protocols. Is that is that a good description, Robert? Yeah, I think Compound was Gauntlet's first customer, so I'll explain it from the perspective of Compound. So Compound has all of these parameters to determine how risky it is to borrow assets from Compound or to like provide liquidity and earn an interest rate. Like, how useful is each asset as collateral? Like, what are all these different like bells and whistles and levers and buttons and things? Right, the parameters of the protocol. Gauntlet built a super smart computer program that analyzed like the one key important number, which is, will the protocol suffer losses in the context of all of these parameters and you know configurations? And they built like a computer program that analyzes it and simulates it and runs it through 800 million Monte Carlo runs. And it says, are these parameters good or bad, you know, based on what the market does? Do that for Compound, they do that for Aave, they do that for all sorts of other DeFi protocols. It's like simulation, Monte Carlo box to analyze if a protocol is safe or unsafe. So they could theoretically build a simulation engine to look at UST or different Terra things or any other DeFi protocol, but it's a bunch of like PhD types that are building models of how DeFi protocols work. And they get paid by these protocols, which is like the new approach. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. They were the first, um, I think they were the first company to really get paid in a, in a very significant way by protocols. So I think it was Aave that first did like a, a DAO proposal to pay them. And I think Compound pays them as well, right? Aave and Compound both pay Gauntlet via the protocol itself. Right, sort of in protocol payments, which now I think has actually become more of a thing since, uh, since Gauntlet kind of pioneered it. Um, and now I think we see like auditors starting to get paid within protocols and, and other things like that. Joe, do you do any, do you guys do anything like that within um, Terra, sort of paying companies within the protocol? So I think there's been a number of grants, but um, no, we, we've never really had an association where like the DAO was paying for a service provider. Some of the things that we've done are things like, you know, for example, like the Washington National Sponsorship. So like the, the Nationals team made a community pool spend proposal uh, against their community pool. And then the community voted to unlock the funds to give to the Nationals. And that was like the only instance that that happened to scale. That's pretty cool, though. That's legit. That's good take, definitely taking it a step further to do like a like a sponsorship by a by a DAO proposal. That's pretty sick. Well, we now we, we now we know why Tarun didn't show up today is that he's too good for us now that he's now that he's a, a unicorn founder. Um, so hopefully we can try to convince him to to hop back on the show in the future. But um, congrats again to Tarun and um, Doe. Any uh, do you want you want to take a bet on what Gauntlet's going to be worth in ten years? No, I wouldn't bet against Tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can take either side. I'll, I'll... Yeah, yeah. You don't have to bet for him. You can bet against him. You can bet against him. I promise yeah. there's no there's no carrying cost on this one. So the pure is the only way to do it. Right, right. Um, well, I am less educated, so I don't think I'll bet on that one. <laughs> okay, okay. All good. I was hoping we could I was hoping we could hedge some of our gauntlet exposure. Well, uh, moving on in news. So that was not the only major fundraise this week. There was a, another pretty blockbuster fundraise. So there's been a lot of news in the last couple of weeks about Yuga Labs, which is the creator of the Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, as well as other associated franchises. There's a big pile of news, and I'm just going to kind of run through all of it and then kind of uh, hone in on the most interesting bits. So the first of all, uh, Yuga Labs announced a fundraise. So they raised $450 million at a $4 billion valuation led by A16Z. So obviously the, the, um, the second now most valuable company in the NFT space behind OpenSea. 
They also announced that they had bought the rights to all of the CryptoPunks from Larva Labs. And what they did is they decided to give the IP rights of the CryptoPunks to the owners of CryptoPunks. So uh, Board of Yacht Club has always had uh, as part of their IP agreement or the licensing agreement that if you own the Board Ape, you have the IP rights to that Board Ape, meaning you can put it on merchandise, you can put it in a movie, you can do whatever you want to with that IP. That was not the case with CryptoPunks. You have the commercial, you have the commercial rights. Yes. You have the commercial rights, commercial rights, excuse me. And so that was not the case with CryptoPunks. But after Yuga Labs bought up the IP rights to CryptoPunks from uh, Larva Labs, uh, they now did the same thing with CryptoPunks, which now gives any holder of a CryptoPunk commercial rights over using those CryptoPunks however they choose. Subsequently, that, that brought them a lot of fanfare, a lot of cheering, a lot of people were very excited, and it, it uh, caused a resurgence in trading volume for both Punks and for the Board Ape Yacht Club franchises. Then Yuga Labs launched ApeCoin, which is a token that is uh, airdropped to all owners of uh, anything within the crypto, or sorry, not the CryptoPunks, the uh, Board Ape Yacht Club universe. Uh, ApeCoin did an enormous amount of volume. It was a huge event, tons and tons of excitement around it. Uh, it is currently trading at um, 1.5 billion circulating market cap. Uh, what's the FTV right now? Is I think it's like 10 billion or, or, yeah, 11 billion, something like that. Yeah, 10 to, 10 to 11 billion uh, FTV. ApeCoin right now, it's a little bit underspecified what it does. Uh, what, what exactly does ApeCoin do? A lot. Okay, so <laughs> one, it's going to be the primary currency in a project called Other Side, which they're releasing shortly, which is going to be like their universe. Um, Other Side, they're going to sell land. It's going to be competing with like, you know, Decentraland and the metaverse projects on Facebook one day and all these things. Also, they're really working hard to make it a currency that's usable everywhere. So like Time Magazine announced that you could purchase a Time Magazine subscription in ApeCoin. Um, it's likely that they're going to be you know, working on many other use cases for the Ape token, um, but it's meant to really be a currency. It's also a governance token in their platform. And it's also going to be, if you've read some of this community discussion proposals on the ApeCoin forums, which I have, and I don't know if many other people have, it's also going to be distributed to, uh, potentially distributed to those who stake their board apes, mutant apes, uh, etc. I think it's one of, going to be one of the most powerful economic forces in NFTs in the history of NFTs. But that's a whole separate conversation. So let, let me ask you guys this: Why why would somebody buy board apes versus like you know those like mutant skull things? Like what makes this collection special? Well, the mutant skull things are weird, interesting, ugly, and important. So, you know, I'll just go through why I think they have, you know, an interesting place in the NFT um, history books. So what really set Bored Apes apart from CryptoPunks, and CryptoPunks are OG, and I'm an OG CryptoPunk maxi, and I used to only support CryptoPunks, and I've over time been converted to someone who also has Bored Apes. But, you know, CryptoPunks existed. Larva Labs created MeBits and gave a large number of MeBits to the holders of CryptoPunks. Mutant Apes were a similar fork slash airdrop to board ape holders, but they did it in more interesting ways, um, as opposed to just like, you have a CryptoPunk, you get one MeBit. So the Mutant Apes are, you know, it's a more complex offshoot where there's different tiers of Mutant Apes. There's mut mutation serums that everyone got. You basically like, you know, evolve these 
um, original Bored Apes into these mutant apes. And where they also have relevance in the ape coin ecosystem, and I apologize ahead of time if I sound like a Bored Ape, you know, crazy person, but where they also have relevance is that they're one of the other primary assets in their ecosystem. And in terms of the distribution of ape coin, in terms of the distribution of future, call it airdrops of different like properties that they're creating in there, they've announced that they're creating many different properties to coincide in this universe. You know, these are like the primary identities that they view as having value. You know, they bought all the IP of CryptoPunks and MeBits, but they don't view them as like the primary actors in the ApeCoin or, you know, Yuga ecosystem in the same way they do, you know, this tiered system of like board apes and then mutant apes as sort of like the recipients of the economic benefits of their ecosystem. So what's interesting is that board apes and mutant apes and the kennel club, which are the dogs, all have sort of like a ratioed economics which were integrated through the ape token. And so you can see this in like the ratio of value that was given away in terms of how much ape for each of these. And you can see it in the proposals around the staking rewards for the different asset classes. There's basically, you know, through the early experience been like a ratioed value between these different assets. And the interesting thing is to see on secondary platforms like OpenSea and Looks Rare and potential future marketplaces, whether or not they continue to trade in these given ratios and why, I imagine at some point, this is like my utopian future, there's going to be a hedge fund that's like a Yuga ARB hedge fund that just like ARBs between relative value between like mutants and apes and like dogs, right? And it's going to be an actual professional job title for somebody in like a year. And if you're an up and coming person, that could be your future. So, I, I mean, so it, it almost feels like with the NFTs, you're sort of inverting the IP publishing model, right? So before um, you needed to create sort of a centralized lore like Harry Potter or the Marvel series, and then there would be one person writing it, one canonical lore that codifies all the stories and the myths and uh, all the fantasies in this world. You know, once you make that story successful, you now get to sell, you know, little tokens uh, that represent some associated value of this IP. So you could either sell like Harry Potter ones or capes or, yeah, I, I don't know, whatever people buy or like a little SCART sticker or whatever. But um, I think NFTs, like it has the same value capture mechanism or maybe even saying value capture mechanism is sort of the middle of the bell curving it. But the idea is that you sort of publish these tokens first and then like you sort of rely on the community to create provenance and lore around it in a way that doesn't really have a canonical center, but um, it, it almost feels like the value of these collections, the, the collections with more provenance, with more, more lore, more culture built on top of it, is going to eventually be more valuable. Am I looking at this the right way? So I, I would disagree with that. I think that's true for some NFT collections, right? I think it's very true for loot. I think loot is the canonical example of that. I think it's somewhat true for CryptoPunks, but I think apes are probably the least, uh, probably the, the polar opposite of that where I think uh, Yuga Labs actually done themselves a tremendous amount to create that lore, to create the universe, to like actively market, to build those relationships and, and kind of uh, build relationships with celebrities, like get, get this thing into, uh, into you know, sort of TV spots and, and make news and do really dramatic things in order to keep the lore going and, and make it really powerful. And so it does feel like there's some NFT collections whose, whose, whose valence has been built in a very bottoms up way. And it's true to an extent, like every NFT collection can only be successful if there's bottoms up engagement. But of all the NFT collections, it feels like 
the the ape universe has been the most top down and the most successful in large part because of that, right? Like there are some, um, you know, if you sort of compare NFTs to luxury brands, there are some luxury brands that become really, really powerful, like sort of in spite of themselves, right? They sort of, they, because like, oh, this one like wood maker from, you know, however many years ago only made like 200 violins and that's why like these are the most famous violins in the world or whatever. And then there's Rolex and Rolex just goes out and they just do the freaking work to make Rolexes what they are, right? They get into all the rap videos. They make sure that people on TV are wearing Rolexes. They make sure that the most famous people are flashing it when they're, you know, on late night talk shows. Like that's, to my mind, what Yuga Labs is. And they've, and they've shown that execution can get you there, can get you into that central spot in the NFT ecosystem. It's, it's manufactured, but it's brilliantly manufactured. I think, uh, I mean, you touched on a point with like the Rolexes and with the mutant apes, which is like, I think in my mind, it's, I feel like a lot of brands struggle from this issue, especially in NFTs where you know, supplies are so limited of wanting to be broadly desirable and you know, recognized but also being having some level of accessibility, right? Like, you know, a Ferrari is kind of more accessible than like a Pagani Huayra, even though, you know, it's like more expensive, but it, there's more Ferraris. And so people kind of know about it more and as like more of a legacy or something like that. And so I feel like there's, you want to sort of find room for yourself to go down market. And if you're Supreme, you know, sell a box logo shirt for $80, but not everyone can buy the $10,000 jacket or something like that. And so you have some amount of accessibility without ruining your brand, but um, still sort of, you know, preserving that, that your know, top tier status. Um, and I think that's what Mutant Ape is like trying to, they're trying to explore that line right now. I think a lot of people were really excited about the Larva Labs acquisition for, you know, sort of the commercial license reason that, that you mentioned. But I think if anything, it's in my mind, sort of a big advertisement for CC0 and sort of, you know, IP on, on-chain IP native NFTs, as opposed to having IP live in this sort of weird meat space and be arbitrarily reassigned, you know, at the whim of, you know, VCs or, or entrepreneurs and instead of have it like live with the NFTs themselves. Um, so, it's, you know, who's, who's to say that, you know, the commercial licenses cannot be revoked or changed or sold somewhere else. Um, and so it's, it's, it's weird that it's been given, but it can also you know, just as easily be, be given away or taken away. Oh, so the question that I was going to ask is regardless of the method by which collections get this metric, but would you say that there's a similar relationship between NFT collections to cultural exposure and, let's say, relevance to um, layer one blockchains and their TVL? Uh, it feels quite different to me. It feels very different to me. I'd say, uh, you know, NFTs, like, you know, getting a lot of cultural cachet and getting a lot of attention is not enough to make your TVL go up. That, that just seems obviously true, is that, you know, there are things like... Um, Andre uh, disagrees. I mean, <laughs> just who, who disagrees? <laughs> Oh, Andre disagrees. <laughs> um, like there, look, there, there are uh, platforms. Like I mean, take Cardano for example, right? Cardano has an enormous amount of cultural attention and awareness and like eyeballs and and users uh, who like own Cardano token and are excited about Cardano relative to its TVL. Its TVL is like infinitesimal, right? It's like it's well, that's because like the blockchain doesn't really work yet. You know, if yes, it was actually yes, a functional like, L1. Sure. I mean, take even Ethereum Classic, right? Ethereum Classic is a good example of a blockchain that way punches under its weight relative to the number of holders of ETC. I think there, there are plenty of examples of this where there's a divergence between the actual, you know, because the number one thing that's going to give you TVL is builders building things that actually require TVL, like that there are reasons to put money on there, right? TVL is more a function of whales. To those point, this is what I agree with. They're both vaguely like hype derivatives in a way. 
in that like, you know, how successful it is, is sort of like, you know, a derivative of just how much attention and excitement there is for it. And there will be, you know, things that don't fit into that model, like Cardano, right? But I think in general, there's a high correlation. I, I want to push back on that. Like, I think you need more than hype to get TVL, right? Just getting hype doesn't get you TVL. It gets you eyeballs. It gets you uh, trading the volume. blockchain has to work. If Cardano was <laughs> I, like Avalanche, let's just say it was like as functional as Avalanche, I guarantee you would have crazy TVL. Yeah, there's a lot of latent TVL for Cardano. Just because I people agree. haven't moved it in yet does not mean it's not TPL. <laughs> I, no, the thing is, I think like the ability, like the willingness to like buy Cardano and trade it is very different from the willingness to put your money at risk in the protocol, right? Like there's a much smaller number of people who can actually deposit TVL into protocols than who can buy tokens. You know, guys, I, I was actually just thinking about this one thing. So it, it almost feels like if there was a service provider like Yuga Labs, but they make they sort of do this thing of creating culture and stories around the NFT collections as a service instead of doing it just for that one collection, this company would be massively successful. Kind of like the decentralized Disney, if you will. No, well, Disney doesn't the- do Disney owns the IP. Disney like makes it very genuinely part of their universe. It's not like a, if Disney was outsourcing their create, like the creation of the, the, the IP, uh, like that company that did the that did the outsourcing would be worth a lot less than Disney, right? Like Nike has a bunch of suppliers, but Nike is the thing that's valuable, not the suppliers. Right. But what you could do, what you could do is that in some ways, by being a service provider, instead of issuing all the IP yourself, you sort of subscribe to the game publisher model. So if you look at game publishers, they don't actually initially come up with the game scripts or the initial game IP themselves. They wait for indie uh, indie game developers to pitch the games to them, and then they see early traction. So they they have the comfort and the ability to use the data that they see from that early traction to publish multi billion dollar games. And what they can do is that they make an investment right before they publish, such that take they take a meaningful stake or meaningful loyalty royalty cut of the potential revenues that are generated. And this could be exactly the same thing. So I, I mean, for example, like off the top of my head and. I'm kind of like definitely not an NFT expert, but what if we just like got a collection, uh, hired a bunch of novelists to write fantasy novels about, you know, uh, 10 different characters and then just made like a Simpsons like TV show uh, by gathering a village of 30 different NFTs together. And then we got like four guys and then made a girl group out of it, you know, hire like, you know, you know, four, four girls from Asia. Actually, you can hire 12 and have three groups compete. I don't know. I feel like there's a publishing model here that could potentially make money. I, I agree that there's an opportunity to expertly manufacture NFT experiences in a way that's more than just like, here's 10,000 pictures that I like pseudo programmatically generated. I, I like Doe's point here, especially on the, the Disney topic. There's this phrase inside of Disney, um, feed the beast, which is this idea that you know the way Disney makes money is not by like, selling movies it's by selling merchandise and parks um and that's where they make all their money and so in reality it's like you you generate the ip to sell all of this other stuff and, and the ip is almost like secondary in a way and so really what disney's been doing lately over the past you know few decades has been buying distressed ip and then like marvel star wars which when no one really cared about and shoving it through the disney machine and you know making insane amounts of money by basically taking this distressed ip and you know, 
showing you how to make money on it. And so I, I don't know if there's like a comp here for NFTs. Like maybe the question is, what would you guys buy as like distressed IP in the NFT space? Like what do you think are underrated gems that you think deserve polishing from like the sort of community and like, uh, you yeah, know, merchandising and, and narrative side? Well, I think the key point though that you were just bringing up is that those brands had fan bases that were passionate, right? And ready to like vote with their wallet on those brands. You know, what makes them distressed is that the price that the market was valuing them was too low relative to how many like diehard and loyal fans they had, right? I don't know if the same model is going to work with NFTs because most of these at least today in 2022, and we're in chapter one of NFTs, which is going to be like a hundred page, hundred chapter book. But like, as of right now, like there's so many of these things, they've all been around so short an amount of time. And in very few cases, you have like loyal fan bases for them, right? There's no loyalty there because there's nothing to be loyal to. Like there is no content. They're just, you know, profile pick sets that are pumped out, <laughs> you know? in short amounts of time. And so I don't think it's the same thing yet. Maybe in 30 years, someone's going to look at Bored Apes or CryptoPunks as like, wow, that's an undervalued brand. Cause like people are still diehard about their punks, but like it's worth almost nothing on the market. It may be the realization here is that like Bored Apes is the first real franchise that we've seen within NFTs, right? Like they're the first real kind of full stack, not just you know, four dudes get together and like pay a bunch of service providers to like mint a 10,000, you know, PFP collection. But they do something much more, much more muscular and much more like what we would identify as like what Disney might do with Star Wars. That feels like the thing that Yuga Labs really got right that almost everybody else gets wrong in this industry. Yeah, they onboarded celebrities and through events and through parties. And like they took what otherwise would be like every other profile pick 10,000 NFT set and actually made it awesome. Yeah, Yuga Labs, I guess, Disney'd crypto punks, right? The, these, these neglected punks, <laughs> and uh, they're pumping it through the Yuga Labs machine. You know, I, I, I saw the, the Yuga Labs deck, and, um, and obviously, you know, they're now teasing Other Side, which is like this metaverse thing that they're going to do. And it did feel very disappointing to me. And I guess this is like the other side of the Disney machine. You know, if you, if you sort of take seriously the idea that like, okay, these guys are good at creating, uh, you know, these sort of, these sort of, this brand identity, right? That's what these guys are good at. Building a metaverse, building like a game universe is like incredibly hard and it's like obviously going to take many years and it's not their proficiency. It's not what got them here. Uh, but then straight away, land sales, right? There's <laughs> 200,000 or what is it? 10,000 or 100,000 plots of land in like a metaverse that's currently unspecified. It, it feels like just incredibly money grabby to me. And it is. Um, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else felt that way, but I'm just like, this is like you jump straight to the end of the Disney line of like now you're like, pre-selling tickets to your theme park and like you have no ability to even build theme park like you never built a theme park before or maybe a theme park has never even been built before and you're just like oh yeah you obviously you're you're gonna want season passes to my to my future uh you know ape themed theme park and um it it just kind of i don't know yeah it is a bit triple dippy in that they sold the they sold the apes and then they sold equity in the company that made the apes and then they dropped the token which is non-dilutive for whatever reason. And now they have a bunch of the token. And so it's like, yeah, they just kind of keep, keep dipping. It's God tier. Which is working. Yeah. God tier. It is God tier. It is definitely (laughs) God tier monetization for a company that launched three PFP collections or four, four PFP collections. But uh, to your point, Tom, that is the power of Disney, right? Disney is not the massive company that it is, 
because the IP is so creative and generative or whatever, it's because it's really freaking good at monetizing the IP that it does have. And uh, maybe that's the, the ultimate takeaway from Yuga Labs is like beyond just the execution and the creativity, it's the fact that they were somehow able to wring billions of dollars out of launching, you know, a bunch of apes. What, what do you guys think about like these Web3 games that are launching? So how does everybody feel about something like Axie? And, you know, like it's kind of interesting watching a bunch of AAA Web2 gaming publishers trying to jump on the bandwagon because they saw the, Ax, uh, the Axie success story and they think they can do better. Axie was a success not because the game, the game sucks and is horrible and is not fun. It's completely stupid. But because of the economics of the game, what they really launched was a DeFi protocol with a better pixel front end. They didn't launch a good game. You know, candidly, the game sucks, right? But the economics are what made it interesting to the world, right? I think there's going to be a lot of people that launch Web3 games and they're all going to suck. I think at some point someone's going to launch a game that's absolutely amazing and it happens to coincide really well with like cool crypto economic systems and it's going to like it's going to like win the whole world <laughs> and it's going to be like the greatest game that's ever been created and like everyone's going to be obsessed and play it 24/7 and like economies around the world will collapse and like people won't leave their <laughs> house anymore but like i i think that's might be like a long way away until like someone just like nails like an incredible game and an incredible economy at the same time yeah yeah i find axe infinity incredibly cynical and uh, very like very I, I think it was an incredibly bad precedent um, that taught a lot of people the wrong lessons about what crypto gaming will be and what it'll be about. Um, and I think I, I, I actually placed a lot of the blame at VCs as well, because I think a lot of VCs were kind of amplifying this narrative because it sounded good and it got a lot of attention that like this is the future of gaming. This is the future of economies. You know, people in the third world are going to stop, you know, uh, growing crops and going to stop, you know, attending stores and instead they're going to sit around and you know do repetitive game loops all day and like just mine fake currencies and fake universes and like this is just obviously like not only bad for the world but it's also just like a a, a very it's like a perpetual motion machine level understanding of how economics works and um there can't be a game where everyone makes money there's no economy where everyone makes money some people must spend money for other people to make money and the, the idea that like everyone in the third world is just going to get paid to like play some dumb game over and over again that doesn't actually produce any net value to anyone else is unsustainable. Like I, I had this uh, tweet uh, a long time ago that was a little tongue in cheek, but also very genuine, which is that you can't show uh, your own poker. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's our show. I can, I can show whatever tweets show I want. Tweets. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, there was somebody from Dragonfly who tweeted that poker is the original play to earn. And I think actually this is a, um, I, the more, the, the, the more time I've thought about this, the more I actually really strongly believe this is that poker is a good example of a game that works within play to earn because some people make money. Some people lose money. Some people don't, you know, some people break even, but like that has to be how the game works. There cannot be a game and, and poker manages to make that fun. And that's a good understanding of what the game probably will feel like if there is this, this economy within inside of it, right? There can't be a game where everyone's making money. That doesn't exist. There is no game like that. And so the idea that there is such a game. (laughs) Yeah, ask ask people who bought it. Ask people who bought it in in, uh, in January. Over any long period of time. Like, come on. You can have things that aren't zero sum. 
I, I agree. There are positive some games, right? And and but in order for in order for there to be a game where where uh, people are are making money, there has to be spending and there has to be value creation. And so it's like, okay, where is that spending coming from in Axie Infinity? Very unclear. Most of what's happening in Axie Infinity is basically sh- like digital sharecropping. Sure, but like here's like the whoa man like you know vision though. What if you just put a game layer on top of the actual real world economy? Okay. Like, what if you just had, like, a sick, like, metaverse on top of a real economy that's not zero-sum, right? Where you're not, like, in a zero-sum, like, mining and spending loop, but where you're, like, actually running, like, the corporations that exist in the real world. You know, like, some, like, Ender's game-like thing where, like, you don't even realize that you're playing the real world and, like, you're controlling the corporations and business units of, like, things. Like, what if the play-to-earn thing is, like, you're running... Corporate treasury of some corporation in Argentina, and you don't even know it, right? <laughs> so, like, basically, this right now is the metaverse. Uh, what, what, well, what I would say, what I would say is that, like, look, if you if you imagine jobs in the metaverse, right? Here, here's here's one of my core complaints about the you know kind of play to earn vision is that the jobs that are conceived of as being the jobs you'll do in the metaverse are extremely repetitive, simplistic tasks, right? Like, you know, mining in Axie Infinity or, you know, growing your axes and battling them and whatever. And basically, you know, in Axie Infinity, I mean, here's the first telltale sign that, like, your system is fucked up, is that in Axie Infinity, you cannot run bots, right? If you run bots, they have, like, an anti-bot detection mechanism, okay? Why? Why Why do they prevent bots? The answer is because they want you to do it manually. They don't want you to write a bot that will do this very repetitive, stupid, mind-numbing thing over and over again. Because otherwise there'd be too much mining too fast. And they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't automate things and make things more efficient. We have to make things inefficient so that we slow down the rate at which this Ponzi ends up getting unwound, right? That's why you're not allowed to bot in Axie Infinity. In the real world, right? Like if you can bot this thing, of course you would bot it. Because that is the way that we've improved the world is by having human beings not tilling the fields, but machines tilling the fields, right? So human beings get freed up to do more complex things like, you know, design ponzi games. So, you know, the, the jobs that you'll do in the metaverse that will actually pay you will be things that only a human being can do. Like, for example, you know, being like a, you know, like a, uh, like a, like a virtual host, you know, where you like, you come in and you like entertain people and, and make them excited to like come into your virtual cafe and meet other, like that's the kind of job that's very hard for an AI to do. Probably you will need a human being to do that. And it's more like a real job. It's not like a rote clicking buttons over and over again. That's what every play to earn game today is like. I'll visit the cafe that you're the virtual host. That sounds awesome. <laughs> See, once you are a virtual host, let me know. There you go. There you go. I had I had a more colorful example in mind, but I went with virtual host. <laughs> All right. I hope I don't think that is what I think that is. No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's um, anyway. Let's 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 move on. So, last piece of news that we'll run through is um, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, actually, uh, Tom used to work for. I don't know if everyone knows this. Tom used to be at Facebook and Instagram, um, so he's very, he's very, he's very close with the uh, the Zuckerverse. Mark Zuckerberg announced at South by Southwest, which is a big, um, you know, sort of multimedia conference in Austin, uh, that NFTs are coming to Instagram. So he, he he was a little bit vague on the details, but supposedly uh, there will be minting of NFTs, and presumably there will also be PFPs that can be uh, that can be used natively on on Instagram. So uh, Tom, given your Insider's perspective on the the Zuckerverse. What do you think of this announcement about uh, Instagram? You know, I, w- I was going to say, I think um, our portfolio company founder, Alex Messwich, might say instead that um, Instagram is coming for NFTs. You know, 
and the Showtime joke. You mean um, NFTs are coming for Instagram? No, because that's what it, he said. Uh, NFTs are coming to Instagram. It was a joke about Showtime trying to do Instagram, Instagram stuff. Instagram is coming anyway. to NFTs. I think it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's what we I get. Meant. It. We got the joke. Great. Anyway, joke. ten out of ten. Really land. Anyway, yeah, I've heard about this. You know, coming for a while. I think the impression I get was this was initially sort of designed or started as like a creator monetization movement within Instagram, which has always been sort of this conflict with a lot of these social media platforms now of how do content creators get paid? Some obviously platforms pay out pretty generously, like a YouTube, others such as Instagram, less so, and they sort of do it on like a more ad hoc basis um, with respect to you know negotiating contracts and things like that. And the idea was this going to be a way for Instagram to sort of uplevel its game here and you know get Instagram creators paid. And I think since basically the pivot to Meta, Zuck's become much more interested in this area, and so now it's becoming almost more of a metaverse kind of play um, that Instagram is a part of. So I'll be curious to see how this plays out. I don't quite know what they have in store, but I mean, at this point, you know, uh, Twitter has already sort of broken the gates open. So we'll see what happens when it comes to, you know, legacy tech adopting uh, NFTs. So how is the meta metaverse going? Because I keep seeing like these like tech demos come out every once in a while, but it seems very underwhelming to me. Yeah, I, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't really know what everyone's doing. I do say, you know, I think what Facebook does better than than any other tech company is growth. Um, they can pretty much build mediocre products and then just like grow the shit out of them. And so I really have complete faith that they will be able to get a shit ton of users on whatever it is that they build, independent of the quality. I think it's a question of what is it going to look like? When does it come out? You know, all, all the sort of you know nitty gritty details around it. I think they're going to fail and instead partner with the Yugaverse. Wow. I think they're the going to buy Yuga's something. coming for, for Instagram. That's new. They're going to buy something? What would you buy if you were, if you were Zuck? If I were Zuck? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I would not buy Yuga or ApeCoin because it's probably too expensive. But you buy, like, the sickest early stage team in the entire space. And you buy five of them, right? You buy 20 of them. I don't, I don't know if that's Facebook style, though. They buy, buy like, a category leader. Yeah, so maybe, maybe it's, like, something like OpenSea. Mm, OpenSea would be really good. OpenSea would be a great investment. Also, also very expensive. <laughs> if, if Facebook buys, sorry, if Meta buys OpenSea, you heard it from Doe. <laughs> you heard it from Doe? Doe, do you want to take a bet on the value of ApeCoin in 10 years? Not at all. <laughs> Well, zero. Ooh, that's a good one. I'll bet, I'll bet on ApeCoin with you, Doe. Okay, I'll bet on Wait, zero. Doe's is going to zero. Oh, you think bet it's going zero. to zero? I'll zero. take way higher than that. Oh, really? Uh. <laughs> I'll take the current price higher in one year than the price right now. Oh, wow. You think okay. high, higher one year than it is right now? Let's say, let's say 10 months. Let's say 10 months to be specific. 10 months. What do you think is the terminal value of ApeCoin? Honestly? I think it's a very asymmetric situation, but like I actually would be long it. I, personally, I am slightly long it, so not materially, but like. Wow. Hmm. Did you see the uh, Yuga Labs round? Yeah. Did you Did you invest or no? No. You did not invest. Okay. Can, can, are you open to sharing your rationale of why you pass on Yuga Labs? Well, listen, I only invest in things less than like a fifty million dollar valuation. <laughs> I'm a pre-seed person. Your pre-seed, your pre-seed. You, okay, got it. I was looking at some of the uh, uh, like some of the big luxury goods companies, or right? like the valuation of like Nike and uh, LMVH and 
you know, all, all these companies that, that maybe you can think of as like the non-metaverse analogies to what Yuga Labs might be or is trying to be. Now, obviously, if, if, they, if they do build the metaverse, then the, the comp is really different. But Nike is the most valuable company in that category. It's worth $36 billion today. And um, right now, ApeCoin, FTV is like 11 bill. So that's like a third fully diluted. I mean, I think, I think to be clear, I think FTV is kind of a nonsense metric in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think it's like really that comparable to looking at the market cap of a traditional company. But because of the differences around dilution and, and how to actually understand what dilution means in crypto versus in traditional companies. But um, it does feel rich. But, you know, with, with, with ApeCoin right now having uh, 1.5 billion circulating, that actually seems, if you just take the, the nominal circulating market cap, it actually seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you can say it's rich when they just created $11 billion out of value out, out of thin air, you know? <laughs> I, I think, um, if anything, it's, it's kind of like people underestimated, you know, tech companies in the early 2000s compared to, you know, sort of brick and mortar, you know, legacy businesses and, you know, sort of doubted the ability for these companies to maintain software-like margins at scale. And instead, so they turned into, like, the biggest companies in the world. And I think, you know, we could see something like that for luxury goods where, yeah, maybe Nike just isn't a great business because, you know, they have this sort of, you know, lower margin, brick and mortar, you know, high OPEX um, sort of uh, business. Whereas, you know, if you just have only the IP and that's pretty much your only cost, um, maybe you can actually just get way bigger than all these other sort of legacy, um, um, you know, luxury businesses. I mean, the best counterpoint is I don't think I've bought any luxury good ever. Like the most expensive watch I ever bought was like $1,100. Like I don't buy nice shoes. I don't buy nice anything. But dropping a hilarious amount of money on a picture of a monkey, I'm like, yes, give me that digital monkey now, right? Like hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? In a way, I've never over like a lifetime spend that much on luxury goods offline. Shouldn't you only invest in pre-seed NFTs? Great question. (laughs) What happened to being a pre-seed investor, Robert? Yeah, what's what's up with overpaying for NFTs when you should be getting pre-seed? Exactly. That's, that's 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 my approach. I mint only. That's my approach. Mm. I'm, I'm very. I buy the Lindy effect. Once the NFT is uh, awesome and everyone agrees mm. it's awesome, that's when I'm like aping in. Got it. Aping in indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, we I think we're at time. Um, so, want to thank you, Doe, for coming on board and, and jamming with us on everything going on in the Apeverse. Thanks, well, Doe. Uh, that's it. That's it for this week. See you, everybody, on uh, on the other side.